Good morning, Boulder. Happy Sabbath. I am honored to be here with you this Sabbath, and you can just count this as yet another guest speaker who's bald with a beard. Amen? Thank you, Pastor Jay. Uh, we have a club that's forming. I have uh, four bald pastors at my church, and then we have a female pastor, but we're working on her. We think, we think we might get that opportunity. I keep saying people, uh, you know, they, we're, we're trying to raise money for this or for that, and I said, oh, well, we should offer to shave our heads if we raise enough money, because <laughs> we already do that. Um, and then I say, well, we should offer to, to shave Alex's head. She's our female pastor, and she hasn't bought into that yet. But it is an honor to be here. Always love an opportunity to come to the beautiful mountains of which the state I currently live in, Ohio, doesn't have any. 1,500 feet is the tallest peak in Ohio. I don't know if you can call it a peak, really. Just kind of a bump in the road somewhere. Um, so it is good to be here. It's also always good for me to come to Denver, which is, of course, the home of my favorite restaurant, Chipotle. Amen, amen. Started just off the campus of the University of Denver. I have made uh, my pilgrimage to the first place that made the burrito. And now, 25 years later, not only is there a Chipotle in almost every place you go, but my son now works for Chipotle. <laughs> Which means I've been translated from this world into the world of 50% off burritos. It's so good. And I can go now, and, and I can, you know, he's usually the, 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 the shell guy that's just getting the shell warmed up and going, so I'm always like, hey, take care of me. And then he goes, and he doesn't just put the little bit of rice and the little, he adds it up. In fact, I do the, I had college students once teach me about the double wrap. Do you know about the double wrap? The two shells instead of one? The advantage of the double wrap is that they can make it as big as they want, and it's less likely to have problems. Right? So, or you get a bowl and a tortilla shell, and then you can just make as many burritos as you want along the way. There's so many. Talk to me later. I, I will tell you that I've learned something about Chipotle, and I won't put anybody on the spot with this, but I learned it first through my own parents, that if you're over the age of about 60 or 65, and, and this, is, this is nothing to, you know, make anyone feel bad, but I've, I, this is just in my own observation. Over about the age of 60 or 65, you can't say Chipotle right. You say, you say Chipotle or Chipotles or Chipotle or, or any number of different things, but not Chipotle. My mom will say, oh, are we going to go to Chipotles? I said, no, we're going to go to Chipotle. I said, yeah, that's what I said. No, that's not what you said. You said Chipotle's. Um, but then I, I was with my parents recently, and they, uh, we were ordering pizza from a place, and they had the Greek olives. Um, and uh, I asked my mom if she wanted the Greek olives, and she said, oh, I'd love to have some calamari olives on the pizza. I was like, um, no, it's actually kalamata olives. But I went to correct her, and my wife just grabbed my arm and said, no, don't. It doesn't matter, she'll still stay calamari. And I said, I know this, but I don't want them to go to a place that will actually try to serve them calamari olives. Which I don't know that those exist, but it's not Adventist. Anyway, it's okay. Um, I'm also uh, excited to follow uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Brother Icky, who was here this last week. 
Um, and I got to watch his message at the start of this series on Colossians called Jesus Manifesto. Um, Icky, when I was the chaplain at Walla Walla University for 14 some years, uh, I, I would host a lot of different speakers. Icky was one of those. And I remember one time we brought Icky um, in to speak and he and I were having a meal at a local restaurant and we were talking to the waitress and we got into talking about religious things. We were having this good conversation and then we realized we hadn't introduced ourselves. So I introduced myself. I said, oh, my name is Patty. And she gave me the look. I'm kind of like, Patty? Isn't that a, isn't that a girl's name? <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, I had to explain what I always do. Well, no, it's a guy's name. It's from Ireland. It's P-A-D-D-Y. And went on all this. And she says, oh, okay, okay. Well, that's, that's different. Then she turns to my friend. And I thought to myself, well, this isn't going to get any better. I said, what's your name? My name's Icky. Huh? So Patty and Icky, a great pair together. <laughs> but today... We are in week two of a nine-week series on the book of Colossians. And what I love about being a part of the Global Resource Collective, something started here in Boulder, is that at my home church in Kettering, we're also going through the same series. And, and so my, one of my young adults back there, I'm the young adult pastor at Kettering, one of my young adults is actually preaching this message um, in just a few moments back there. And so she and I have been uh, connecting about this verse, verses 11 to 14, and talking over it the last few weeks. It's been a lot of fun to dig into this. But as we look into the book of Colossians, let's talk a little bit of background. Icky introduced things a little bit last week. Let me tell you a little bit more about the book of Colossians as we get into it. And as we do that, let's have another word of prayer. Father God in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us all together today. Thank you for a chance to worship Thank you for your word and the word that we have to read and the word that became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I pray that you would lead and guide us as we spend time together this morning, that your spirit would help us to see what we need to see, to hear what we need to hear, that we may in our own lives have a more clear revelation of who Jesus is, so that that revelation will give us the courage and the strength to go where we need to go and to reveal Jesus to a world in need. Thank you for being with us and teaching us now. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen, amen. So the book of Colossians was, was written about the same time as the book of Ephesians. In fact, probably from the same place. Paul was in chains, he's in prison, and he's writing to these churches in different places. Now the church in Colossae was not a church he had been to before. It was planted by a man by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras has come to Paul to tell him about some concerns he has about the church in Colossae. It's a beautiful thing. They're doing good things, but there's some false doctrines and some false teachings that are starting to creep in to the church community. And Epaphras doesn't know what to do about this, so of course he's gone to Paul to get some help. Help me figure out, Paul, what do I need to do? And if you read Colossians and Ephesians at the same time, it's fascinating because Paul says a lot of the same things in different ways. And so I, I encourage you to read both books as you go through this series and just see how different things are said in different ways by Paul. Um, but he goes to try to figure out, what do I do about these false doctrines and these false teachings? What do I do about some practices that are starting to creep in to this church community? Now today, we may expect Paul to write back about these things and to address them one by one. Start off, okay, there, here's a false teaching, and let me tell you what to do to fix it. Here's another one, let me tell you what to do, here's another one. But Paul doesn't go through a list of all the false doctrines and false teachings. Paul's approach to try to um, clear these things out of the church is, one, to pray. 
He prays for the church. He opens the letter with a prayer. And then his response is to exalt Jesus. He says, in order to address these false things, we're going to make sure that you know who Jesus is. We're going to have Jesus high and lifted up because if Jesus is high and lifted up, if you understand an idea of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you, then everything else, all the other priorities are set in place. In fact, I would venture to say that all of our biggest problems in the church today comes from when we don't have Jesus high and lifted up. When we don't have a clear enough understanding of who Jesus is, when we set all these other things as priorities other than Jesus, then we start to have problems. And that's what Paul is trying to correct. He's coming in and saying, you have got to know who Jesus is. He believes that by knowing Jesus better, one will be better equipped to distinguish right from wrong, good from evil, light from dark. And his statement echoes what he said to the Corinthian church when he said, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's answer to all of our problems, both in life and in faith, is Jesus. And praying for us to have more of Jesus in our lives. He writes later to the Hebrews to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For Paul, a Jesus-focused life, a better understanding of Jesus, more time spent on Jesus we'll put our lives into the right order. And of course, Paul didn't learn this on his own. Jesus was the one who said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added unto you as well. So Paul comes by this naturally. It's always interesting to me uh, when, you know, we get criticism and, and those of you that know, you've been on the journey with the One Project and all these things, but one of the craziest criticisms that we get with the One Project is this idea of... Look, I, I get you guys are talking about Jesus and everything, but when are you going to get past Jesus onto meatier things? I don't think you get to get past Jesus. I don't think you get to say, oh, okay, like, yeah, we covered Jesus last year, um, and so we're going to do other things now. Icky said last week that if doctrine doesn't bring life, then we have to be concerned about the doctrine. And I would say, yes, that's true, because if doctrine doesn't reveal more of who Jesus is, then there's a problem with the doctrine. We've got to be revealing Jesus. As Jesus reveals himself to us, we reveal him to the world, and that has no end. There are no depths to finish investigating, and oh, we figured out the Jesus thing. In fact, in our own planning meetings at our church, getting ready for this series, I realized in our worship planning meetings, we actually had the conversation that said, okay, well, you know, through this series, this series, you know, Jesus Manifesto, it really gives us a chance to, uh, let's, what, what Jesus-centered songs can we sing during this series? During this series, how, how can we really focus on Jesus? And I started thinking, well, why is that a conversation we're just now having? Shouldn't every week we be, well, what songs can we sing about Jesus? I mean, it's in our title, Christians, Jesus. So, That's what Paul is looking to do throughout this book, is to magnify who Jesus is. And to go back to the passage that was read to us earlier, um, let's look at that a little bit more. Colossians 1, 11 to 14. Paul is praying, 
And this is how he ends his prayer. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, I find it interesting that in both Colossians and Ephesians, when Paul prays for the community and when he teaches them to pray, he doesn't ask for them to be removed from their circumstances. He doesn't pray for their circumstances to change. He asks for them to have endurance and patience and strength in the midst of their circumstances. I find this interesting because their circumstances were dark. I mean, they were living in a time of persecution. They were living in a time of a politically corrupt environment. They were living with disease and and famine and drought and all sorts of other things. And yet Paul doesn't pray, God, rescue them from their circumstances. Instead, he prays for them to know how to navigate their circumstances, to know how to live within their circumstances in a way that brings glory to God. Because he knows circumstances can change in a heartbeat. What doesn't change is the presence of Jesus. And Jesus has promised to be with them. We'll come back to that in a bit. But the word darkness is what we're going to focus on. Paul gets into talking about being delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son or the kingdom of light or the saints of light, the text says. The word darkness in the Greek is the word skotis, which can mean at least two things. It can mean to be literally in a place where there, it is absent of light, and it can mean to be in a place with, uh, that it's immoral, a place of ungodliness, okay? And we understand this idea of words meaning different things depending on what context it is in. We call that in the English language a homonym. A homonym is, depending on the context, it gives a word different meaning. The word in the English language that actually has the most meanings with this understanding is the word run. Okay, Uh, run in the dictionary has over 400 different ways it can be used, 400. Now, can you think of a way to use the word run in a sentence that would have different meaning? And this will be the moment to talk back in the sermon. So anybody use the, the word run to mean something? Just use it in a sentence. Sorry? Going running? Run for president, right? You can run for president. What else can you run? Run errands. What else can you run? Sorry? A marathon. Run a marathon. How about uh, your jelly and your peanut butter and jelly sandwich can run, right? Or your stockings are, I don't know what girls call these nowadays. Tights, stockings, nylons. I have no, no idea what it is. I just know I don't wear them, as far as you know. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, you can have a run in your stockings or a run in your nylons. There's all sorts of ways to run, right? 400 different ways to use it. And darkness can have some of that same kind of thing. You can be in a dark room, right? You can go dark with a secret. You can be dark-complected, of which I am the opposite. I I was talking to my brother Elia earlier. We were talking about the rich Irish heritage. I keep trying to tell my children... When they go into summer, I have a, a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old, and they're always like, Dad, I'm going to go out and tan, and I, kinda, I just laughed at myself. Because <laughs> I know we don't tan, 
in the McCoy family. We just burn, right? There's no getting brown, it's just a red. Um, you know, so a dark complexion, um, a, a place of business can go dark. Uh, you can tell a dark joke, right? Um, and so darkness is not often associated with good things, you know? Bad things happen in the dark. You get robbed in the dark. You bump into things in the dark. That's why we walk around like this in the dark, trying to avoid stubbing our toe into something or running into a wall. The craziest things that have ever happened to me have happened in the dark. One time I accidentally, emphasis on the word accidentally, wandered in the middle of the night into a nudist colony. It's true, and I got out of that nudist colony, I was gonna say as fast as I got into it, I actually got out of there faster, um, because I, once I realized where I was and what was happening, I didn't know, I'd never been in a nudist colony before, I didn't know what they would do to somebody, they would find fully clothed in a nudist colony. I imagined that there was some sort of weird burning of the clothes ritual, they would strip me down and throw my clothes and welcome me into their, their clan. Um, so I ran out of there as fast as I could. I've knocked over a vase, a very expensive vase at someone else's house because I bumped into it in the dark. Um, I can remember a night camping out in the wilderness all by myself in the middle of the night, but staying awake all night because of the sounds happening all around me, which were one of two things. It was either a pack of wolves waiting to devour me whenever they felt like the time was right. Or the other thought I had was it was a tribe of nomadic men who were waiting for, looking for their next sacrifice, which was me, because I have far too active of an imagination to be in the dark by myself. So there's the little, literal kind of darkness that some of us don't love, but then there's the other kind of darkness, the kind that we can experience and feel, whether it's dark out or not. It was about 12 years ago for me when I entered into the darkest season of life that I have gone through. I've told the story in several places before, but um, I was going through a transition in work and that transition kind of triggered some things in me and I entered a time of extreme anxiety and extreme depression. The kind where every morning you wake up and you're just sweating and you're just so scared about what's going to happen next. What, what's my next failure going to be? What's the next shortcoming I'm going to bump into? What, what, how am I going to let everybody down today? All of these fears just racing through your mind and, and, and so much so that you feel paralyzed, crippled. You can't get out of bed. You can't live life normally. Um, and this was the state that I was in for uh, uh, quite a while. Uh, days of just being so scared of failing or messing up that I couldn't function. This darkness was all-consuming to me. It was absent of hope, and in some strange way, this darkness felt more real and heavy to me than any literal darkness I had experienced before. This darkness became my life and my focus, and I couldn't see beyond it. I didn't have hope that it would someday change and feel different. And people tell you in these times, well, why don't you just focus on something else other than the anxiety? Well, when you're in a season like this, just choosing is not something you can do. I would love to have been able to just choose to focus on something else and choose to not let this anxiety define me, but I couldn't. He said it was crippling and all-consuming, and as a chaplain and pastor for most of my career, I've journeyed with a lot of people living in a dark season of life. 
people that have lost a loved one, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a parent, dark times. People that are struggling with addiction, who try as hard as they can, they just can't seem to give it up. People that are overwhelmed by debt, feeling as if they're never going to get out from under it. People that are struggling with things in the darkness like pornography or same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria or uh, abuse stories from their past and things that are weighing so heavy on them and so consuming at times they can't see into any time when there will be light. I have friends that have longed to get married and share their life with someone else, and yet they're still single and they wonder why. I have other friends that desperately want to have children and start their own family, but not only can they not have children on their own, but they can't afford to do anything else about it. They can't afford to go in for the treatment or they can't afford to go in for adoption or something else. Dark times. And when the darkness feels so thick and so all-consuming, some of us convince ourselves that the only way this will ever change is to take our lives. And I understand that now. I know what that's like to sit there and think. But before I struggled with this, I used to think about suicide and these other things like, oh, that's just crazy. It's a, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But when you're in the middle of the darkness, it doesn't feel temporary. It feels permanent. And you convince yourself that the best thing for me and for everybody else is if I'm just not a burden on their lives anymore. We do this in our faith, too. We go through seasons in life where we have so many questions and we cry out to God, but we don't hear a response. We seek God and, and we don't seem to find him. And for some of us, we kill off our faith because of those dark seasons. For others of us... We don't necessarily kill it off. I mean, we're still here in church. We're, we're mouthing the words to the songs. We're playing the part, but inside we feel so utterly alone. Darkness. The darkness can be heavy. But what do we do when we feel trapped in or by the dark? What do we do when we're so tired of fighting, of trying to pretend that the darkness isn't really there? Well, Paul's answer, as we'll see, is what Paul's answer always is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's learning to focus on Jesus and what he is and what he has done. And that will help us see us through these dark times. For when we focus on the dark, the darkness consumes us. But when we fixate on the light, the darkness runs and hides. And I know it's not that simple. Again, it's not just an easy choice to make. It is a fight, and we'll talk about that. But what I have learned about the dark times is something that uh, the group Switchfoot sings in one of their songs, is sometimes in the darkness, it's the shadow that proves the sunshine. Sometimes it's the shadow that proves the sun, sunshine. So let's look to scripture to see what it has to say about Jesus and light versus dark. Well, first of all, the Gospel of John tells us that in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In Him was life, and that life was the light to the world. Jesus, we believe, is that Word. For John goes on to say that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. 
So Jesus is the word, and it goes on to say that in him is life, and the life is the light to the world, and that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Another way to translate it is the darkness doesn't understand it. We see this phenomenon, and we walk into a dark room, and we go to light a candle. What wins in that scenario, the light or the dark? When you light a candle, the darkness goes running because the light fills the room. And that's what happens. The darkness can't overcome the light. We see this in the stories of Jesus time and time again. That Jesus goes into the darkness. He came into the incarnation, became flesh, came to the darkness to shine a light in the dark places. To go into places that we would never dare to go. And when he does that, what happens to the darkness? It goes running. Right? So there's the places where Jesus comes into contact with dark forces. Right? Jesus goes to the region of the Gerasenes, and he comes across two men who are possessed by a demon. These men have been considered too powerful and too dangerous to go and do anything with by the people that live there. They've tried to bind them. They've tried to overpower them, but, but they can't. And so now they just try to leave them alone and steer clear of this space, this darkness. But Jesus... Jesus isn't bothered by that at all. Jesus walks right into it. And what happens when he does? Soon, the demons go on the run. Now, there's a little exchange between Jesus and the demons, but the demons don't fight Jesus. The demons don't try to go against what he tells them to do. They have to do whatever the light says because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. And so the demons go on the run. We see this in Luke 4, too, when a demon-possessed man confronts Jesus in the synagogue, and Jesus commands the demon to be silent and then come out of the man, and the demon has no witty comebacks. The demon doesn't say, make me. The demon does exactly what the light says, because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Then Jesus confronts those suffering under the effects of darkness, to the man who was born blind since he was born since birth. The man born since birth. That makes no sense. Uh, but a man born blind, born in darkness, Jesus gives sight. To a man that was crippled, Jesus strengthens his legs. To the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and utterly alone because of her condition, Jesus restores her both physically and emotionally as a person that is restored to be a child of God. To Jairus' daughter, to the widow's son, to Lazarus, Jesus gives them light back into them, life. Not only does that bring light to them, but it also brings light to the grieving that are around them. In the presence of Jesus, the darkness goes running. Then there were those whose choices led them into dark places. Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well, Peter, after he denied Jesus, again, Jesus goes into these places. He goes to these people, unafraid of the dark, and he shines light into their life, gives them a different perspective, and makes it so that the darkness no longer defines them. Only Jesus defines them. Ah, you say, but our struggle today is different. Jesus isn't here in the same way. So how do I overcome the darkness? I've been crying out to Jesus, but... My pain hasn't gone away. The depression hasn't gotten any better. My loved one still died, and the darkness is so real. I know this all too well. 
I prayed for a very long time for God to take the anxiety away. I said, God, I didn't want to feel this way anymore. Please take away my anxiety. And then when I was in a doctor uh, appointment once, the doctor used a phrase that, that hit me in a different way than it had been before. He said that this anxiety is going to be your handicap. And when I heard that, I said, wow, that's, that's interesting. And I started thinking, and, and of course, I was talking to counselors, and I was working with people, and I was going through all this stuff, and, and I started to change my focus after that. My focus stopped being, God, take this anxiety away from me, and it started to be, God, help me live with this in a way that brings you glory and honor. Don't take this away from me, okay? I, I, I get that may not be in the cards, but, but help me live with this in a way that can be light in the darkness. It changed my focus. My focus was suddenly no longer on my anxiety or letting my anxiety define me. My focus was now on how do I live for Jesus in a way that through this brings him glory? How do we do this? How do we trust in Jesus when our circumstances don't change? How do we trust that the light is shining when the darkness feels so real and so thick? Well, I don't have all the answers. I know it's a fight, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but I do know this, that I've seen it happen. I've watched it, and it is, it is amazing and breathtaking and powerful. So a couple of examples. Exhibit A. On February 10, 2015, a former student of mine at Walla Walla University by the name of Madison went on a bike ride. It was the first day in a long time in that season because uh, it was February, so it was winter uh, in the Northwest, which mostly means grayness. Um, but the gray had dissipated and the light was shining. It was a beautiful, glorious day and Madison wanted to go on a bike ride. She loved the outdoors. She got on her bike and she rode away from campus on a, a road called Whitman Avenue. She's riding down Whitman She's going off, she's riding, there's fields to her left and fields to her right. She's enjoying the day. But then, tragedy. She's hit by a car who was blinded by that same light. Didn't see her. Three days later, Maddie was taken off of life support. It was a light on our campus that went dark. Now this happened several times throughout the course of my chaplaincy there. But Maddie was different in the way that how many people she affected. She was a, a light that shone in such a way that there were people from all different walks of life that had been impacted by her presence. And so there were so many people so, so overpowered by this loss and this darkness that came in. Two days later, at her funeral, um, Maddie's mom, Lisa, asked a couple of her friends to play some praise music in the course of the funeral. Um, and, uh, and so during this praise music, when there was this darkness in the church and just this sadness, I happened to look over and I saw this picture. I took this picture, I should say. It's a little bit of a grainy picture, but in the midst of this darkness, do you know who has her hand up praising God? Maddie's mom, Lisa. There she is with her hand raised in the air, defiant, of the darkness. 
in a way of just subversiveness and saying, the darkness is not going to win. Jesus is my God, and I trust in him, even though right now I'm surrounded by grief and darkness. This is what it is like to not let the darkness win. That is what it's like to show the darkness that it has no power over you. It is supernatural. It is otherworldly. But as Paul writes, for once you were full of darkness, but now you are light from the Lord. So live and walk as people of the light. It's Ephesians 5, 8. I remember one day in particular, my struggle with anxiety, my wife pulled me aside and she said, she said, Patty, I need you to fight for your family, to fight for yourself and to fight for your family because this anxiety, this darkness is destroying us. And I have to tell you, that's exactly how it felt. It felt like a fight. It was a fight to try to change my focus off of my anxiety and onto Jesus. And she said, you know, Patty, you're not going to have to do this alone. God's going to be there with you, but I need you to fight. My counselor had said something similar. My counselor was an uh, ex-Marine um, and uh, a Catholic background. And one day he said to me, he's like, Patty, you know what it's like to be in a fist fight, Right? And I, I laughed and I said, oh, no, no, I'm an Adventist. We don't fist fight, okay? If we get upset with each other, we just throw it, we have a committee meeting. That's what we do. Or, or, or we get online and we tear each other down. That's how we fight. Um, and uh, so I, I, but I am the youngest of, of three brothers. And so I know a little bit about fist fighting. Because as the youngest brother you, you have, or child, you have two things that you struggle with most, right? One, of course, is the youngest child's thing for attention. Right? You're always seeking attention because the older brothers, you know, they steal the spotlight from you all the time. You're always trying to get it back. But the other thing that you struggle with as a youngest child is that you flinch at everything, right? If anybody goes and moves too fast around you, you just, hey, so my wife, you know, when we first got married, she'd go to take an eyelash off my cheek or something. I was like, whoa, hey, too fast. Slow down. Because my brothers had beat me up so much in my life that any sudden movement in my purview was like, stop. Right? So that's what youngest children wrestle with. But a fist fight and fighting like that is what it took. And I did this for so long. I fought for so long that eventually, one day, I realized, I woke up and I was like, oh, wow, my fight is no longer consuming me. My fight is no longer everything I could think of. I'm spending more time thinking about Jesus and all the blessings he's given me in my life than I am fighting my anxiety. And it took time and it took resources, it took people, it took help. But over time, eventually, I realized the darkness no longer defined me, that I was giving glory and honor and praise to God instead of worrying how I was going to get through another day. Exhibit B, second story. There's some friends of ours that Trisha and I have known uh, for a very long time. The husband's name is John, and John and I have been friends since seventh grade. The wife's name is Rachel, and Rachel and Trisha, my wife, went to high school together. These two actually introduced us to each other, set us up on a blind date. Um, it was the first time we met each other. Uh, and then the rest is history. And John and Rachel and, our, and, and Trisha and I and our families, were, we're more family than we are friends. They were there for the birth of our children. We were there for the birth of theirs. But this last fall, the darkness crept into their lives when they received word that their oldest, Isabella, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
Well, this is scary stuff. And they were sent into a time of just being scared, beat down, entering the unknown. They started reading more about the disease. They started reading more about what they were going to do. And they went full on into treatment. After a few months, she was declared in remission. And they celebrated for about two months. And then she started feeling sick again. She started to have some problems. They went back in. Diagnoses this time, stage four. They're back at treatment as we speak. But when I was visiting with them a few weeks ago, Rachel said this to me. She says, I know a lot of people cry out in these times. Why us? What did we do to deserve this? She went on to explain, as hard as this journey has been, as much as we wouldn't wish it upon anyone, our journey has been, or as much as we, wish, we wouldn't wish it upon anyone, our response has been, why not us? Why not us? She said that they have a strong faith, a great community who supports and loves them, and they have so many people praying for them um, that they can carry the light in this present darkness. That's just blows my mind. It's otherworldly. In a post from June 13, just a few weeks ago, Rachel wrote this on her Facebook. She says, our faith is thick, friends, that though this comes from the hand of chaos, death, and demise, it will not be victorious. We know God is good. This is not of him, but he can see us through, make a way. So we go to war in subversive, joyful worship because we are loved and sustained by God and each other. That is what it is like to stick it to the darkness. I remember one time having this thought that, um, you know, Jesus said he came to give us life and life abundant, but I felt with my anxiety that my life was being stolen from me more than anything else. And then I had this thought of, you know, if I really want to stick it to the devil, I'm going to live my life to the fullest. I'm going to enjoy every moment that God has blessed me with, and I'll show the darkness who's boss. Because the darkness isn't boss. Jesus is. One more short one. Uh, this is another set of close friends to us. Um, but some friends of ours, their 10-year-old, diagnosed with leukemia. Um, I don't know if any of you have been through a journey like this, but just frightening and scary. They were at our house the night before he was diagnosed and had some challenges and problems. Um, but in his treatment, months and months and months up in Seattle, having to go through treatment and stay in a place to keep his immunity strong and all of this kind of stuff, they got him an iPod so he could start texting friends and stay in touch with people. And he started texting me one day, back and forth, mostly silly stuff. But then he said this. He said, I never knew that I would get cancer, but I did. Then he says, and I also know that God is with me and I just have to fight through it with all my heart. It's a 10-year-old. Glad to say that for him, his journey is almost over and his leukemia is all but gone. But watching him fight through the darkness, watching him and others cling to light when they are surrounded by so much pain, it's inspiring. And it gives me the courage to fight to pray in the face of adversity, to sing songs of praise when the night is long, to hold fast to Jesus, the light of the world, who traveled into the darkest of places so that we don't have to. He asks us and begs us to live in such a way as to shift our focus from the things of this world to the one who created it. He encourages us, 2 Corinthians 4.18, fix our eyes, not what it 
not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. As the late author Barbara Johnson once said, faith is seeing light with your heart when all your eyes see is darkness. Staying focused on Jesus and things internal instead of things temporary can be so difficult at times, which is why we have church. At my church in Kettering, our motto is that when we talk about church, we recognize that church is not a building or a service. Church is not a checklist or a chore. Church is you and church is me. Church is all of us living kingdom values together and doing our best to answer Christ's call. That's what church is. And when we're in darkness, we need church because we need people that are holding on to the light to go into the dark places and stay with the people that are stuck there until they can once again start seeing light. That is our call. That is what it means to be transferred from the dominion of darkness where darkness reigns to the kingdom of light where Jesus reigns. There is a song from Hillsong that says this. It's simply titled, Let There Be Light. Let there be good news that embraces the poor and comfort for all who mourn and for the brokenhearted. May we sing louder. May we help restore sight to the blind, breaking the curse of the night, and for all in darkness, may we sing louder. Let there be light, church. Be church to those stuck in darkness. Don't let the darkness win. It has already lost. And so claim it. Claim the name of Jesus and fight to take your focus off of the circumstances and on to Jesus. And when you can't do that for yourself, then find people that can help you switch your gaze from the darkness to the, to the light. For you are not children of the darkness. You are children of the light. So as Paul says, walk as children of the light.